It's a special Friday night edition. A special Friday night edition of but, Friends You Wish You Had. We are not those friends. Well, so I don't want people to think I'm a monster, but I'm going to start with this. Um, last night, we, uh, so we, we got a little mouse problem in our apartment. It's not nothing terrible, you know but we see them occasionally. So we put some snap traps down. This is like a while ago, you know, put snap traps down like a year ago. Last night for the first time ever, I don't know what happened. We startled a mouse, uh, you know, food on the trap, whatever it was. We just heard a mouse start mouse screaming. And I took my flashlight and I went underneath the, uh, cupboards there underneath the, uh, sink and saw that it, it, the trap had caught the mouse on its hind legs and basically just shattered its legs. So now you're in a position where the mouse is alive and if you don't do anything about it, it's just going to sit there and slowly die. So you got to kill it to take it out of its misery because you certainly can't get its legs fixed up. So we Googled how to kill a mouse quickly. And for some reason, it was decided that the best way to do it was to put it in a jar with baking soda and vinegar, which would create carbon monoxide or dioxide or monoxide. I don't actually fucking know. And take all the oxygen out, thus asphyxiating it rather quickly. So that's what we did. And I can't stop thinking about it because I believe in karma, and I got a little Jainism in me. How long did it take you to put that concoction together? Oh, not long at all. I mean, it took a little while for me to try to think through what we should do and try to think if there was... 20 minutes? I would say more in the 5 to 10 minute range. So that so you could have just beat the thing to death in 30 seconds. Instead, you let it suffer for 5 to 10 minutes while you Googled it and made this concoction. Now, I've had this conversation earlier today with another friend of mine, and that was exactly what my other friend said. And I did not have the nerve to beat it to death. And I, I actually read that the fastest way to kill it, if you have the nerve, is just to cut its fucking head off. Or step on it. Oh, man, can't do it. Can't do it. No, but so, I mean, I understand what we ended up doing. This is a great microcosm for politics in America. I'm just kidding. They, they say oftentimes that people who are torturers are very brutal, but they actually are terrified of killing people. They find that mindset when they uh, study them in captivity. So it's an interesting analogy to not, you know, being able to just step on the mouse and kill it, but rather take the time to mm. kill it more humanely. Interesting stuff. <laughs> well, uh, so that's where I'm at emotionally. Let's talk about sports. Let's talk about sports. Honestly, do you? Yeah. Um, is that what you want to talk about? Are you cool talking about sports right now? I'm cool to talk about anything, Roman. It's a special Friday night edition of Friends You Wish You Had. So here's my, here's my fun statistic that I learned today. Um, there are 51 days remaining scheduled days remaining in the major league baseball abridged season and because of the coronavirus outbreak on the st louis cardinals they've only played five games so far out of 60 so they have 55 games left to play and there are 51 days left in the season 
And that's where Major League Baseball is right now. Where? How many games have teams played so far? The teams that haven't missed any games. Um, it, it's always – everyone's always like one or two apart. The Yankees have played 11 games. Gotcha. So they have 49 games left in 51 days, which is pretty much average for baseball because, I mean, in a normal season, you play something like 162 games in like 180 days. You don't really normally get that many days off. The number between days remaining in the season and games you have to play is always pretty close. Um, But I can't imagine it's, it's common to have more games to play than there are days left in the season. I found a great uh, Twitter feed that I started following called uh, 2020 Astros Shame Tour. And it's, it's at Asterisk Tour is their Twitter handle. Mm. And they are uh, doing a lot of great Astro shaming content, um, which was really one of my the things I was interested in most in this baseball season, which the coronavirus has taken away from me, was watching the Astros get shelled all year long for their Ter- the terrible cheating that they were found guilty of. Um, but I have enjoyed watching uh, Jose Altuve strike out multiple times of uh, all the other fan hijinks that has greeted them in towns. I think people are, you know, beating. One of the things they're doing to beat this pandemic is when the Astros come to town, they go outside the stadium and bring all kinds of ridiculous signs they're to, not- to taunt them. So I'm yeah. enjoying it. Yeah, they're not doing very good right now. I mean, uh, Jose Altuve is uh, hitting 192. I think Alex Bregman is hitting underneath 200 as well. What that means, you know, is anyone's guess. Um, Have have you seen the Astros Asterix hat? They're very cool. I I think I might want to get one. (laughs) uh, Yeah, no, I actually have not. Actually, Bregman's back up to 235. But... um, you know, I just, it's just like these. I think last night they gave up nine runs in one inning. It was a big night on uh, the 2020 Astros Shame Tour Twitter feed. <laughs> oh, I'm seeing the hat now. I like it. It actually looks pretty cool. I was thinking it was going to be kind of like, it's just an asterisk over the star. Yeah, it's just, it's just what baseball has done is so stupid. And it, you know, kind of goes into football and college football and the NFL. And we talked about it a little bit like last week or, or two weeks ago, but. You know, uh, the NBA right now, so far, successfully doing the bubble. Ratings Uh, are up big time in the NBA, in fact. You know, I I mean, I don't know how other people feel about it, but I have to tell you that I personally am more into sports that are doing it appropriately and that are handling it right. Um, I mean, I've always been a huge basketball fan. Basketball has been my favorite sport since I was a little kid. So it's not new for me to be into basketball, but it, it certainly helps that they're they seem to be doing it in the right way. I've also been watching a lot more hockey. Um, I wouldn't say that I'm a hockey fan or that I've gotten hooked, but I've watched like three hockey games in the past week, which is more than I usually watch in a year. Um, you know, they're in Canada. They're doing the bubble. Uh, Where just is like the, the hockey bubble? Is it in one city or a couple? Can it, you know, I mean, um, I mean, there's not a lot of hockey bubbles. I thought there might be two cities. Yeah, no, I'm fairly certain that it's in two cities. Um, one is one is definitely in Toronto. The other one, I'm not 100% sure. I think it might be in Vancouver. But, you know, so they are, they are doing – they're doing a two-city bubble. But I saw just like the NBA and so far in their bubble, no positive tests yet. 
So they are they are doing it right. Uh, is that accurate? I don't know if they've had. No, I mean, I don't remember a test coming back positive in the NHL, but they certainly have had nothing even remotely comparable to what's happening in Major League Baseball. I mean, it's working as well as the NBA is working. So, um, so uh, two positive tests announced on July twentieth. I think there haven't been. Yeah, many I think since they, the actual season started. I mean, I think the NBA took yeah. a couple players as they transitioned yeah. into the bubble. But since the season started and they quote, you know, locked it down. Yeah. Once they, since they've locked it down, I think they've been pretty good and everything's been going fine. And I don't know, like I, I am, I, I love baseball. Um, I want to love hockey because I'm a huge sports fan. And so I, I try to get myself, I try to force myself to be, get into sports that I didn't grow up with. Obviously, the best way to become a fan of a team is to grow up with it and have your parents potentially into it or the city that you grew up in. You have wonderful memories. One of the reasons I'm a huge NBA fan is uh, my dad was six, seven and he played ball, not professionally, but he you know, loved playing ball, played 10 hours a day when he was a kid, you know, and we would watch the Knicks constantly when I was a kid. Um, and so that's why basketball was the big thing. We never really watched any other sport. I think we just kind of watched a – we started – my dad kind of got into football when I was like 14 or 15, and he got into the Jets. So I have a passion for the Jets, um, not as much as the Knicks. But, um, but yeah, so I've managed to get myself into sports that I didn't grow up with, the most notable one being soccer. I got into soccer when I was like 22, that was fun. And I, I keep trying to force myself to get into these games because it's like just more content, you know. If if there's a game in a sport every single night and I'm into all the sports, then I always have fantastic entertainment. I have failed to do that with hockey so far. But the pandemic might be turning the tide for me because I just like the idea that they're safe, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I like the idea that they're not – whole teams aren't going down. I feel like the NBA is doing better than the- – the United States of America put Adam Silver in charge of the testing program and, you know, we'd have daily tests. You know, I, I, I keep thinking about why baseball just didn't do it. I, I, I don't know. I, what I heard I is guess- the owners felt that they didn't want to totally write off the chance of getting the ticket money, you know, that they thought maybe there was a chance at some point that fans could come into the stadium and they wanted the money and the players weren't really gung-ho for the bubble either. You know, so just like yeah. everyone else, they deny the science thinking that there's some hopeful corner that's going to magically be turned. The weird thing uh, is that I think they could have fans in the stands, but they would have to do it. I mean, I don't know how it's – there's no stats that I'm aware of on how it's been going for NASCAR. But NASCAR – Well, but they couldn't have fans – they they couldn't have, you know, Yankee Stadium couldn't have fans in Yankee Stadium paying ticket money to the Yankees. Yes, they could have had a bubble and then maybe had some people in the stands. No, but I mean, like, so, but NASCAR, I mean, NASCAR is a little bit different because NASCAR is not like eight, you know, 15, 16 different games a night in all these different stadiums. It's just they go to one place, they have a race, they go to another place. But NASCAR has had fans. Um, they're just doing lower capacity with a lot of social distancing. And it seems to, I don't know if it's been working. I don't know if any stats have come out on any 
you know, uh, you know, people getting infected in NASCAR races, but it seems like it could work because the lower capacity that they've been doing is so low that if you, I put on a NASCAR race a week or two ago, you know, it looks like there's 20 people in the stadium. Obviously, if you counted them all up, there's hundreds, but they're so uh, distanced. Yeah, but and no one's so testing far those apart. people. I mean, you know that's spreading yeah. the virus. I mean, it's, you know. Well, I, mean, I don't know. The, the, the protests have not had, you know, from what we know, the protests haven't had any huge uh, infection events, you know, and, and, that's, and that's people wearing masks and being outside. Fair enough. You could certainly have, you know, the more information that comes to the table that, you know, rigorous, disciplined mask wearing um, can stop the transmission. So, yes, definitely fair enough. Well, I think it's like um, NH- base- baseball yeah. is not even at a point where the players were, were, will wear masks and they can't keep the players safe. Yeah. You know, and I think had they done a bubble and followed the NBA's example, um, yeah. They could have, but of course they were greedy and stupid and couldn't get their act together as a league. And, you know, that's why they are where they are, where they're just sort of grinding through this, you know, pretty meaningless season. But they're continuing to play the games and, you know, I'm sure it'll, I, or I assume it'll get better in terms uh, of, just, you it, know, the it, discipline. It feels so meaningless. It feels so meaningless. I, I have trouble putting on a baseball game because it just, just, yeah, it just feels meaningless. It feels like... Like an exhibition. Uh, it, the season's not going to finish, all that stuff. Like, it just doesn't look like anything's going to happen. Aaron Judge has been hitting, like, two home runs a game. Well, I mean, to be, to be realistic, he's hit, like, seven or eight home runs in the first 11 games. He hit, like, a home run in, like, six or seven games in a row. I think they should, they should just say he's hitting three home runs a game. Just put it out there and see yeah. if people will pay more attention. You know, I mean, the Yankees are like have like all their best hitters healthy for the first time in two years, and I just don't care. It just doesn't feel like it matters. And at least, you know, I think one thing though, the NBA and the NHL, at least they saw like they're indoor sports, so I think it was a lot easier for them to get over the idea that they're not going to have fans in the arena because it's not an outdoor arena. Um, it, it does feel like these sports can have fans if they do it right. Do I have any confidence? I mean, clearly the, uh, uh, you know, leadership in MLB has made a ton of stupid decisions. I have no confidence that the leadership in the NFL would make smart decisions, but if I just think unless you're quarantining, I mean, at this stage, unless you're quarantining the players, you know, they're in some kind of bubble, but instead they're, you know, they're going to their houses and they're with their families and their kids are doing stuff and they're going out to dinner and then they're getting on the plane and then they're flying to another city. And before the game, they're walking on the field, talking to the other team. Nobody's wearing any, you know, very few people are wearing any masks. You know, at this point, it's not rocket science. Like you're going to spread it. Um, yeah, you got, uh, and, you know, uh, um, Aaron Boone, the manager of the Yankees, he's been just wearing like a bandana as a mask. And this man is like a millionaire. You'd think he could afford something a little bit better than just a bandana. I mean, at least he's wearing one. Yeah, at least he's wearing something. I'm just, yeah. I guess I'm nitpicking a little and bit. And it just sends, you know, it's just sending the message of social responsibility. I think when you see these NBA players and NHL players, they're really making a point to say, like, we're wearing masks. Like, it's part of what I think people are enjoying about it is, like, at least somebody can behave responsibly, you know. Um, nothing's perfect, but it just gives off that, 
you know, impression that we're, you know, we're trying to adapt to the new situation and it's a little different, but it's working. Seems um, like it was going well in the premier league in England, but of course England is a lot. I don't know. It's, I wonder why it's been going well there. They've been traveling, but they, but it's, but I think they're doing a lot of, I think they're still there. It's almost like a semi bubble because they don't have to, deal with a lot of they don't have to like fly and go to all these you know different i I don't know i I might sound like an idiot saying that but like england is a lot smaller i feel like they can drive places drive places but and there's lower rates of the virus in their country because their country is yeah yeah you know so i think that's part of you know they sort of go hand in hand yeah i guess i'm also thinking like as a new yorker i'm just looking at new york and you know as you know yeah. Well, I, I think the cool thing, though, with the NBA is you've got all these guys. They're like in this, you know, quote unquote bubble. You know, it's sort of this whole different vibe to the games. You know, it sort of has a, you know, a real tournament feel to it. You know, they're getting all this cool content. They're all sort of in it together. And I yeah. think that's sort of translating to the fan experience, you know, in baseball, which before this happened is desperate for some kind of shot in the arm. You know, they just can't even get this right. You know, and to some extent, I'll give them a break. I mean, their season was supposed to start right when this thing kicked off, so that's tough. Um, but yeah, to come back and play a sixty-game season, and and especially a sport where you're not really standing next to the, you know, you're socially distanced during the game, so you can't be socially distanced before the game. Yeah. Um, so you know, it is what it is. I'm sure it'll. You know, and baseball it, will survive, but this is does does seem like a black hole. Interestingly, so the Champions League, um, for anyone who might be listening who doesn't follow international soccer, the Champions League is the yearly tournament of the best uh, club teams. Um, anyway, but they're doing... I reject explaining what the Champions League is, dude. If Fair you don't enough. know what the Champions League is, find another podcast. <laughs> but they're doing... So they're doing like a sort of a mixed bubble. So this is interesting. Uh, and this is from... Uh, I'm reading from Sporting News, so no one accuses me of plagiarizing, but the, um, when the pandemic hit, the Champions League was at the second leg of the round of 16, uh, the Sweet 16. And so they are resuming it, obviously, there. And they're resuming it with um, Juventus, which is in Italy, Manchester City in England, Bayern in Germany, and Barcelona in Spain all hosting matches at their home stadiums. But once those games are played, the quarterfinals and the semifinals are no longer two legs. They're going to be single game elimination. And every single one of those matches is going to be played in Lisbon and the champions uh, and the championship, the final is going to be played in Lisbon too. So it's kind of like a half and half, like they're starting off by letting teams finish the round that was paused, the round of 16, and then they're going bubble in Lisbon, Portugal. Interesting. That is interesting. Um, I'm not sure why. I mean, I, I guess it's some attempt at fairness, but if you're going to do everything, I'm sure there are some logistical reasons for it, but it seems like if you're going to play most of it in Lisbon, why not do Lisbon? They're also trying to lower the amount of games that have to be played by removing the two legs for the quarterfinals and the semis. Yeah, I, yeah, I guess, but they're going to keep the the uh, the brackets and the number of games the same, right? No, 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 that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. So, no, uh, his, you know, normally um, 
it's a two-game playoff series for um, for the round of six. The, the home and home, right, right. Yeah, so you do home and home for the Sweet 16, to use American parlance. You do that mm. for you do the same thing for the Elite Eight, and you do the same thing for the Final Four. The only game that the only game in the playoff stage that's single elimination is the final. But so what they're doing is they're finishing the second game of the round of 16, and then they're going single elimination for every game forward. So normally quarterfinals and semis are two matches, but they're now going to be single elimination. In American football, I've been fascinated to see all the players opting out. It's not that that's a fascinating trend. It's interesting, but I feel like at the end of the day, though, it's only been like... What, about 13 or 14 players? Actually, it's about 67. Oh, wow. Oh, again, more than I thought. Oh, I thought it was just... It was like but, seven guys in the Patriots and just a few random guys. Yeah, but the total, you know, total players is like, uh, you know, 2,000 or something, 2,500 players. So it's a lot of players. I mean, granted, there's a lot of... A lot of the people that have money, a lot of people that are starters. So I'm trying to see. Uh, I think that, and also it just speaks to sort of the mercenary nature of football. So I think it's also guys on one-year contracts, and they're like, eh, I'll sit this one out. I'll be back. Yeah. I mean, the um, – oh, God, what team – so the, the Panthers in March traded for Russell Okung from, uh, from the Chargers. Um, he is discussing – he has not opted out yet, but he's saying that he might retire. Hmm. He's made $100 million in his career. Um, so he certainly doesn't – I was it might, about to say – It might be time to step away. <laughs> it might be time. It this might season, be time. You know, in football, it just has the feel of football. They are just going to grind through – you know, they'll be calling guys up from semi-pro <laughs> leagues. They're just going to grind through and play the game. You know, so much money on the line. So you got, you know, guys that play, or you know, they're like, "I'm already risking my life to play this game. <laughs> What's one more risk?" Yeah, and I'm sure the ratings will be huge too. There have been some very good players who have opted out. I wouldn't say that there's been any true stars, but some very good players. The Jets, my team, are uh, not doing super hot with the opt outs because we, we, uh, we traded away. Jamal Adams, and we just got an opt-out from uh, C.J. Mosley, which was our remaining great defensive player. I mean, there's other good players on the defense, but our two best players are gone now. But, yeah, the Patriots got hit the hardest. Um, Who knows why? But, yeah, they lost, you know, Tonta Hightower, that's huge. Chung is huge, you know. They they lost Marquise Lee. They don't really have a, a ton of wide receivers. I'm surprised Belichick just didn't cut them all. Screw you, no masks. Oh, I feel like <laughs> yeah, I feel like you know some someone in Belichick's life like they basically were like, yo, I'll give you five million. Like I feel like I feel like uh, uh, I really don't hate Bill Belichick that much, but it's just he's got, a, he's got a rep for being a prick, and I think he enjoys it. So I am very neutral on him. I have no, I have no. <laughs> joy i have no joy or hatred for that man even as a jets fan um i don't hate him but i don't have any reason to like him either yeah i mean the trump stuff kind of puts him in the hate category but other than that you know uh, i did forget about that <laughs> what, what's the name of the owner of the patriots again robert Kraft. 
Robert Kraft. I feel like Robert Kraft is like, Bill, I'll give you $2 million if you don't say a goddamn thing about COVID. (laughs) And then college and high school sports will be fascinating. There's some very ugly stories coming out of Colorado State University. I saw they have suspended the season. Um, Among complaints from Colorado State athletes, staffers, coaches have told players not to report COVID-19 symptoms, symptoms rather, threaten players with reduced playing time if they quarantine and claim CSU is altering contact tracing reports to keep players practicing. So I think that broke yesterday. Oh, man, that's... Then there's been some reports of, uh, I think, I don't know, you know, racist language from some of the coaches so they've just decided to suspend the season you know unilaterally uh to opt out of the season and i guess get their football program uh in line which is they had just you know i used to live in fort collins for a little while they had just finished their new football stadium like two seasons ago Mm. so i guess it went to their head but that's brutal i'm on uh ksat.com which is a san antonio news source saying that football practices for corporate for a Corpus Christi area high school have been suspended after a player tested positive for COVID. I mean, that, that's really it though, right? Like what you're saying, like there's no way they can do this unless they lie about it. You've got that, you know, that viral photo um, from the school in Georgia um, of the crowded hallways where only like three kids in the photo with like 70 80 kids in the photo in the high school were wearing masks and then you find out that uh, two of the kids from that high school apparently got suspended for posting on I social saw, media i saw after a day they reinstated the kids i'm sure after a meeting with the school board attorney they were like let's get these kids back right away it's just insane that they ever considered that the kid going on social media and complaining and I've seen this. So this is not an original thought, but there's a lot of people on Twitter are saying this and obviously I agree with it, but it's this concept of all these schools are now saying like, look, we can't force people to wear masks. And these are all the same schools that are like, send a girl home because they see a bra strap, send a kid home because he's wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. With these like, private schools and charter schools with these ridiculously strict dress codes such a failure of leadership imagination it's unbelievable just, you know it's i went i went to a private catholic school uh for um for grade school um i went to private catholic school actually up until college but i, I went to high school at fordham prep which was not too bad the jesuits were um I liked the Jesuits, although I must admit uh, my two favorite teachers at that school, one a priest. You, you are a product of private schools. Just say it. I'm a, no, I'm a product of private uh, Catholic schools. And um, I was about to talk about how much I love Ford and Prep because there was a lot I liked about it. But my two favorite teachers, I won't say their names because I don't want to get sued. <laughs> they have not been convicted. <laughs> they like to touch. But uh, two of them, literally, if you if I wrote down, if you asked me six months ago or a year ago, who are your favorite teachers? Two out of my top three, uh, one a priest, one not a priest, uh, yeah, were removed um, for uh, for touching, uh, for groom, for grooming. They were um, reassigned. They were uh, they were they were uh, removed and reassigned. Well, one, one, I don't know, one was fired and then the other one wasn't teaching there anymore. 
but he was um, a member of the Jesuit order. So he was um, removed from housing on the campus. Gotcha. Oh, wow. and so then, they, like they lived, it was attached to a, a church or something and they lived in the, on the campus, the teachers. Well, Fordham is huge. It's like the university, the high school. So my high school. Oh, was oh I didn't realize it was connected to the university. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the same the, campus. I gotcha. Yeah. My high school, the high school, Fordham high school is on the same campus as the, it's, it's on the Bronx university campus. Uh, um, but bizarrely my middle school, my first grade to eighth grade experience was even worse not because of anything specific that happened to me, but it was run by the Christian brothers. And these people were fucking maniacs. And the only way I can see why all these schools are doing all this stupid shit is because I saw how dumb the administrations of these schools can be firsthand. I mean, they were just, they were pieces of shit. Like the, the principal of my school, he's the only person in my entire life that when I heard he died, I smiled. I think Trump will probably be number two. Um, but this is like, this is a guy who, uh, I remember my mom's friend went in there to talk, to have a meeting with him about, you know, something she was mad about going on in the school. And uh, he told her to calm down, go home and have her husband call him. Nice. And this is like, That's you know, terrible. whatever, this is like, this isn't, you know, it's not like, you know, the this 90s, is, right? I mean, yeah, it was, it was uh, <laughs> this was like 1995. Go home, smoke a cigarette. Yeah. Take a pill and take tell your fucking, husband to call me. Take a Valium and tell your husband <laughs> to call me. And by the way, that woman was the wife of the mayor of Yonkers. So it's not even, <laughs> you know, she had power, man. That's um, crazy. But so staying with our theme, how was your high school football team? Were they good? Were they bad? <laughs> My high school football team, um, I actually, I don't know how good they were as far as wins and losses, but we did have a couple, we did have people that went D1. Gotcha, gotcha. And, and like, you know, I don't know how many games we won, how many games we lost. I don't know about any of the careers of the people who went D1 or, or whether or not they, they were starters, but I think someone in my class went to Penn State or, or either Penn State or UPenn, but, you know, so... Yeah, you know, so we did have some D one people. Interesting. Yeah, I I don't the, the how the COVID stuff is going to affect high school and college sports is it's going to be fascinating. It's just amazing how many distractions we have in this country and how committed we are to them. And I understand it to some extent. People people get really excited about it and they want to do it. And and I don't think that just canceling it is the way to go. I mean, I've seen a lot of in high school sports and some colleges are starting to postpone stuff into the spring. And, you know, I get that. And just some way to kind of reimagine oh, that is, it in a safer way, you know, just yeah. less games, quarantining players before just some way where these leagues and, you know, school districts can get together and come up with some kind of creative thinking, but then they have no leadership when it comes to their actual schools. So how are they supposed to have leadership when it comes to their, Athletics. I don't mean leadership in their no, no, in their no, school. I, I mean in their you know local and state and federal government on how to yeah, deal with this thing. No, and I agree to you. I agree with you to an extent. I mean, I mean, let's look at it. Let's let's say the pandemic lasts for years. I mean, you hope that we will do better than the world did during the Spanish flu. I mean, at least overall deaths 
we're doing better than the millions who died during the Spanish flu, but the Spanish well, flu. La- we're early. You know, this goes on That's for a few years. We're early. No doubt. And the Spanish flu lasted for like three years before it, it, it chilled out. So, so, you know, in that respect, I do agree that just saying we're going to cancel everything until uh, the pandemic's over isn't necessarily the way to do it. But, you know, the way to do it is to be honest about science, <laughs> to be honest about actually caring about human life, to not just say stupid things like, oh, 15-year-olds aren't as much, aren't as affected as people who are older are, which is such a dumb thing to say because, you know, if you were just open every school tomorrow and play all the sports in high schools, statistically, some kids are going to die. And it might not be many, it might just be a dozen over the course of a year, but that's that's a dozen too many. And so, so you know, it, we should try to figure out a way to continue our lives. We should con- try to figure out a way to keep the economy open, to keep playing sports and do all the things that we normally like to do or, or need to do. But it requires like legitimate good faith reasoning. It requires science. It requires leadership. It requires all the stuff that just none of these people seem capable of doing. Well, I would say it requires things that authoritarian regimes are not good at. Mm. You know, people do not trust authoritarian regimes. None of the information that comes out of an authoritarian regime is trusted by the people. Um, uh, So I do wonder if it's going to, you know, eventually, like all discussions, it comes back to what's going to happen in November. But I wonder a little bit if that's one of the things that's going to sort of break this spell we seem to be under at the moment, is that you people have no trust in the institutions and the leadership that they need to solve this problem, and they're fed up with it. Sort of reminds me of the, you know, something I didn't know a lot about until I watched that great HBO miniseries about Chernobyl and how what happened to Chernobyl and the way that the Soviet government responded to it and just lied to all the people and the people knew they were lying, you know, created this tremendous rift in people's confidence in that government, you know, and they, you know, kind of made the point that it contributed to the downfall of the Soviet Union. I don't know if this is, is stark. We'll see. We're just at the beginning, but, you know, we need a country where, people follow public health guidelines and where people trust the CDC and the, you know, sort of the scientists and the doctors that the government are working with to be giving them, you know, good information that they can trust. And that's really not the mark of an authoritarian regime. And you look at places that are doing better with this and no one's doing it perfectly. It's they're more democratic countries where, you know, people have more faith in that stuff. Yeah. And it's an interesting point, though, about authoritarianism, because, you know, I was seeing a lot of comments over the past few months, like occasionally in an article, sometimes on Twitter and just social media and other places of just people talking about us. Some people were cracking jokes and some people were being facetious, but there were other people who who were being serious, saying like, you know, authoritarianism has its merits. And the example was China shutting down the the COVID outbreak um, by locking down cities and and being able to force people to not move and, and and wear masks and all this other stuff, I just think that's such bullshit. Like partially because, first of all, you know one of the kind of big milestones of at the beginning of the COVID outbreak in China was a doctor 
begging the local government to take it seriously and they arrested him and he died from COVID at the age of like 36. Definitely. I mean, well, there's been some great reporting about the sort of failures of leadership and the up numbers, and down the chain yeah. of command in China because China has always had authoritarian leadership, but the leadership that's in power now has gone so much further in that direction. It seems like it's the been, worst since Mao. It hasn't. It's, yes. I mean, it's yeah. really emerging that way. And it affected their response to this because the information was not getting to Beijing in an honest and timely fashion. And then the information coming out of, you know, Beijing was not timely or honest either. You know, I thought it was an interesting story I read. Someone was talking about American government this week. And they're like, in this country, we have the faith that if the authorities stumble on to 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate, they just don't leave it in a warehouse for mm. years and years as they wait to dispose of it. Um, now, I hope that's the case. You know, I like to believe that's true because when we hear about what happened in Lebanon and Beirut this week, it's just like, man, how come a government wouldn't, you know, deal with that problem? But their government was so, you know, sort of inept, corrupt, and strained by, you know, all the forces, you know, that have tried to, you know, from the Israelis to the Syrians, to the Iranians, to the Russians, to the Americans that have meddled in that country destabilize the government over time, you know, they just don't have a functioning state where, you know, hey, if they stumble onto 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate, it like sits in a warehouse because what are we going to do with it, you know? And some of those things are, you know, basic functions of government. And when you can't do that, it's a real problem. You know, yeah, I mean, I, would, I think we are, you know, we're sort of seeing that happen in America. I mean, God, we are. <laughs> you know, I or mean. the beginning of it, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's the beginning. I mean, who knows? But, you know, I, I think the stuff you're talking about, uh, you know, the, the, the correct information getting to Beijing, um, not getting there, information not coming out because the system that they've created does not allow for the sort of free flow of ideas. Yeah, when there's an authoritarian at the top, it's like, if you give me bad news, I'm going to cut your head off. It's like, eh, yeah, I'm going to give the guy the good news. I don't want to risk it, you know? Yeah, and I imagine and that's it, the same way when you report shit to Trump. It, 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 you know, from every news report I've read, it seems that that is the case. And, and not just that, but also the just complete decimation of uh, the bureaucracy and the, tech, uh, and the technocratic state, so to speak. You know, I... There's a lot of criticisms of uh, technocrats, a lot of criticisms of bureaucracy, but if that stuff doesn't exist and everyone's just a loyalist, as Trump has been pumping in, and not even people that have been confirmed, but just, you know, him just putting whoever likes him in temporary positions all over. I mean, the State Department was gutted within a year of him becoming president. And so, of this course, you could imagine terrible tragedies happening because there's no one at the, no one at the wheel. So on July 31st, um, the press secretary for the Trump administration put out a release that said, for immediate release, President Donald J. Trump and his administration have created the best COVID-19 testing system in the world. We do tremendous testing, quote, we do tremendous testing. We have the best testing in the world. President Donald J. Trump leading the world in testing. President Donald J. Trump is ensuring that Americans have access to the most advanced and robust COVID-19 tests in the world, et cetera, et cetera. And the uh, reporter from Politico <laughs> tweeted it out with the comment, Chernobyl is happening right here. 
Yeah. You know? And I thought, oh, that was so on the money. It, it just is so counterintuitive in a democratic state. Like, even when you're a giant piece of shit, if there's a pandemic and you're like, we need to do more testing, we need to do this, you know, the attitude of, of people like me, you know what I mean? So certainly there's loyalists who are going to support them as we're seeing whatever, but people like me who are like, kind of fuck that piece of shit. But if the guy's out there saying, hey, there's a pandemic, we need to do this, we need to do that. It's like, give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because, hey, we want to clear, you know, clear this thing up, you know? Mm. And it's so counterintuitive in a democracy that you wouldn't act like a democratic leader, but, you know, here we are. Yeah, and even the consistency of messaging doesn't matter because they, they try to have it both ways. They also release press releases from the White House saying, you know, that... On one end, they're saying, you know, what you just read, greatest COVID response in the world. On the other end, they're going, hey, look, if something goes wrong, we left this to governors. This isn't our thing. We have nothing to do with this. They're basically saying, you know, as much as they can, that we are not responsible for any defeat and we are responsible for every victory. And that is, is just, yeah, that's like out of, you know, something you'd hear in Nazi Germany or out of 1984 or, you know, it's very Stalinist sounding and it's, you know, and I, and hopefully people are, you know, scratching their heads to the point where they're going to vote the bums out, you know, assuming they even have the chance to do that. And it, but it's, it, you know, it's just astounding, you know, it's. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, and I, I, I look at uh, obviously anecdotal, but uh, when I, when I occasionally out of curiosity, go to the Facebook pages of uh, conservative people I grew up with who I'm no longer friends with, but I was, you know, great friends with in high school and all this. And I don't even follow them anymore, but I, I didn't unfriend them. And I just, I go check and I see them posting all this conservative content. What I see more than anything, you know, I see QAnon stuff. I see, uh, I see arrest Hillary, you know, I see all that crazy shit. But the comment I see more than anything, again, obviously, anecdotally, is uh, the Dems are going to raise our taxes. That's it. That's what amazing, I see more than anything. Did you see uh, John Oliver this week where he talked about the challenges of teaching history in the United States, specifically sort of tied into, you know, the history of white supremacy and the Civil War and slavery and Reconstruction and Jim Crow? I did. It, 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 Ending it, with that Lee Atwater quote, I thought was just so was on still, the money. Oh, I, yeah, I was screaming at the TV because I've been trying to show friends that Lee Atwater quote for a decade. I think you showed me or put me on to the, the, uh, the documentary. About, I believe, right? Wasn't it a front line about Lee Atwater? Yeah, bo- Boogeyman, the Lee Atwater story. I'll, uh, I'll, I, you know, I always throw the credit to Frontline. <laughs> they didn't make that movie, but... No, I, I think you're right that it was at least, you know, it was released by Frontline. And, um, you know, that that quote by Atwater um, about how you can't say the N-word anymore and now you have to say things like states' rights. Um, taxes. That's what your and, friends are saying. You know, I mean, I, I know you know this, but... No, 100%. Like, he's going to raise their taxes. like... <laughs> Yeah, that's what that's what he's good. That's why you're not voting for Joe. Biden. Yeah, you know, and uh, and you know, yeah, the, and that that Lee Atwater quote was like kind of urban legend for a while. It was like everyone everyone said he said it, but no one had proof. And then eventually, and then someday, someone just this, who had access to the audio finally released it. I think Mother Jones had the scoop on that. Uh, I don't remember. I feel like there was a bunch of stuff that came out after his death. Maybe he died at a 
yeah, but the age but the, of pancreatic cancer or something like that. I can't remember. He did die from, I don't know what kind of cancer, but he did die from cancer. Um, no, but the audio of cancer that. Cancer of having a rotten soul. <laughs> yeah, but the, the, the proof of him saying that, everyone believed he said it, like it was from good sources. But I think the, the proof of it didn't come out until about five years ago in a Mother Jones scoop. Yeah. Um, where they finally got the audio. And... Um, uh yeah yeah well you know my my since we mentioned the cancer one of my favorite stories um if you can call it that from the lee atwater documentary is that when he was dying from cancer and he was um getting all the treatments and not doing well and for the first time in decades was in a position of incredible vulnerability where he couldn't step on people anymore he needed people's help he um, he was talking a lot about Jesus and coming to God, which he had never really talked about before. But all of a sudden, he was coming to God and he was coming to Jesus and blah, blah, blah. And apparently, the story is that after he died, when they were cleaning out uh, the room he died in, there was a Bible in the, uh, in the dresser, uh, dresser drawer, which uh, was still in the cellophane. <laughs> Hadn't been opened yet. Yeah. Anyway, we're sort of digressing on Lee Atwater, but like, yeah, man, like, because deep down, all these people know that all these policies that they're rooting for, or that they're trying to avoid or whatever, um, the policies they're trying to avoid might help black folks more than it helps them. And the policies that they want will definitely hurt black people more than it hurts them. What Lee Atwater said was, and from his quote, you're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes, and all these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and a byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. We've we kind of gotten a little off of, uh, well, it's all tied together, of course, but we're sort of on this long narrative trend where now we're, we're, we're far you, away from... You, got, you had to say what your, you know, your right-wing QAnon Trump voting friends on Facebook are saying. Well, which, you know, I, just, which I appreciate it. Look, I, appreciate I mean, we were, we were talking about sports and we're talking about people like ignoring COVID and we're talking about, you know, failed leadership and we're talking about authoritarianism. We're talking about a misinformed public. And throughout all of that, with all the shit going on in the world and the masks and the COVID and anything, what is this, you know, significant portion of the country or, or not significant, but like, you know, right wing conservatives, what are they all freaked out about? They're all freaked out about Biden's going to win and raise their taxes. That's the big concern. I mean, I've even seen a big thing now is uh, that I'm seeing a lot is Biden's V. Biden knows he's going to die. And so he's going to choose a VP that is going to end up being president. And that VP could very likely be Michelle Obama. Interestingly, I do feel like he said he's not going to run. He's hinted already he's not going to run for a second term because of his yeah. age and his health. So it's a very, all that is very weird politics to me. I, you know, we'll see how it comes out in the wash. I, I think he's, in my opinion, he's like cut the legs out from under he, whoever he picks as a VP already. So that's disappointing, but maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, these people understand just how dumb and misogynistic Americans are. So by kind of, you have to seed the, yeah. The field a little bit. You got to prepare people. You can't just spring it on them that you're going to pick a female vice president and that'll work out. And the proof will be whether they win or not. There's really, it's very easy to tell if it worked or not. It's a, 
either win or you lose. And if you lose, it failed, you know. Can I just say there's a podcast that I found um, called uh, Rabbit Hole, which is sort of all about the, it's it's a New York Times like eight part podcast. And it starts out with a deep dive into the way YouTube's logarithm sent people who were looking for self-help videos to, they ended up becoming these hardcore white supremacists. Mm-hmm. And then it eventually goes into the story of Q and uh, it's really good. It's really good. It's definitely worth a listen. It does a real deep dive into the history of Q. Uh, and it was fucking fascinating and unfortunately terrifying. I'll check it out. Yeah, Q just lost one of its biggest uh, Twitter people. He said, I'm done. I don't believe it anymore. And they are all, they're all calling him a traitor. That bodes well for, uh, for Biden, maybe. <laughs> yeah. oh, hold on just one second. Sorry. Sorry, I, I thought I heard screaming and I was very concerned and I just turns out Meredith and Cole are watching a musical. I thought some shit was about to go down. Well, let's well, wrap just, this I, puppy up, dude. All right, so um, that is Friends You Wish You Had if you take... Oh, wait, two- let me, one more thing. I got to give my brother's article a plug. So my brother in the Washington Post today, he has an op-ed uh, the title of it is the U S hired me to protect refugees. Now it tells me to abandon them. My brother is an asylum officer with the U S CIS, which is the United States citizenship and immigration services department. It's part of the uh, department of Homeland security, a separate agency within Homeland security. Um, he does a lot of great work. He works with some of the most vulnerable refugees all around the world, like interviewing them and facilitating them to come to this country. Um, it was a pretty nonpartisan agency and process going back to Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, like Republican presidents, Democratic presidents. They were all pretty much aligned that we should have this you know, robust refugee system uh, within, you know, in the United States to allow people to come in. Trump has politicized it beyond belief. He has shut it down. Um, the people that work in this agency are trying to uh, stop that from happening. And he published an op-ed in the Washington Post today, and it's great, and people should check it out. I have met Jason, and he's a wonderful person, and I agree. People should read that article. And that is Friends You Wish You Had. If there's anything you take from today's podcast, it is that You should play sports in a bubble. You should oppose authoritarianism and you should care about refugees. I'm Roman Bodner. Say goodbye, Jeff. Goodbye, Jeff. That's it.